Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the Constitution and the founding. Uh, we're not going to dive right into the Constitution, though. We're going to take a little bit of a breather so that we can appreciate how we got there. It was, in fact, not our first official governing document as a new nation. As some of you might be aware, we fought the Revolutionary War. We came up with the Articles of Confederation. They didn't quite work out the way that we needed them to. We'll get to that in just a little bit, but I want you to start back in the colonial era. Now, you might remember we weren't very pleased with the way that we were being treated as colonists. Cries of taxation without representation rang throughout the colonies. And in many respects, we felt like we weren't being heard or seen. At that time, traveling across the Atlantic Ocean took a considerable amount of time. We're talking about 3,000 miles. We're talking a whole lot of ocean that has to be covered. Now, if you're the king and you can send somebody that far away on a boat, you're probably not going to send your best folks, are you? You're probably going to send some people you want to get rid of. You probably can think of a few people you would want to put on a boat right now and send to the edge of the earth. So we might not have gotten the best administrators, and because accountability was so far away, we might have seen even good administrators engage in malfeasance and turn bad. You might remember we had the totalitarian acts, we had the stamp tax, we had a lot of things that we weren't very happy with, and we finally codified those. We, we wrote those down, and by we, I mean Thomas Jefferson. He declares our independence. Now, many of you may remember the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. You might remember when in the course of human events. You might remember uh, having to memorize and recite that. But I doubt that you've ever read in depth the Declaration fully. What you'll find if you do is it's essentially a list of allegations of abuses by the crown on the colonists. Probably the one that really stands out is he has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of his officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. That, in a nutshell, is the way we felt about King George III. So we fought for our independence, and with the help of the French, we won. We're so terrified at this point of centralized government, we want accountability from our elected representatives and our government officials to be as close as possible to us. That is the unit of the state. So we create an, a form of government under the Articles of Confederation that is a confederation. That is the opposite of a federation, the opposite of a federal system of government. Rather than the central government being supreme and sovereign, the independent states enjoy sovereignty. This does cause some tension, cause some problems. For instance, we're not able to raise an army. We're not able to tax as a central government. We have various currencies throughout the states. We have different tariffs. We have property disputes. We have disputes over, say, riparian rights. Who gets to claim use of the water of, say, the Potomac River? Lots and lots of cracks 
in the Articles of Confederation begin to evince themselves. And then comes Daniel Shays. And Daniel Shays says, hey, I'm in debt. I'm an indebted farmer. If I can get other indebted farmers to march with me, we can burn down the Capitol building of our state and thus erase all records of our debt. Because we don't have a standing national army, we have to scramble to thwart Shays' rebellion. And at this point, we start to say, oh my gosh. Especially those people who have a lot of property, the people that own the debt. They're a little bit worried about not having a strong central government to be able to thwart rebellions like Shays' Rebellion. This is the final straw. We say these Articles of Confederation need revision. And the founders meet in Philadelphia under the auspices of revising the Articles. We see several debates between anti-federalists, those who want to keep power in the hands of the states and limit central authority, and federalists, those who want a strong central government that has ultimate sovereignty and can coordinate action on a national scale. <clears throat> what happens? Well, after several debates, lots and lots of writing, especially the Federalist Papers, that is essays written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. And these are essays published in New York newspapers that are bent on turning public opinion in the direction of the Federalists. If the New York State Legislature will ratify the new Constitution, well, a lot of states see New York as an innovator and will follow suit and will try to do the same thing that New York has done. And so out of all these debates, we get a series of compromises. Yes, we get a Constitution that, according to Article 6, is the supreme law of the land. However, we also get what the Anti-Federalists want in the form of the Bill of Rights. We have expressed guaranteed rights for citizens and states themselves, if you look at the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Anything that's not explicitly listed as a power of the federal government belongs to the states and therefore the people. So it's a series of compromises that we see. The fundamental question, again, with the Constitution, who has the power? Who should be sovereign? We've already given up some of our independent sovereignty to government. Now we're deciding which level of government ought to have the final say. The Constitution, of course, answers this, again, with the Supremacy Clause in Article 6. What about representation for this new nation? How are we going to make law in a legislative body that's representative? If you're a small state, you want equal representation. So New Jersey wants to have the same number of votes in the legislative body as, say, Virginia. If, on the other hand, you are Virginia, and you have a higher population, you want more say. You want a proportional representative system. What do we get out of this? The Great Compromise in Article 1. We get a lower house, a portion based on population, the House of Representatives capped at 435. And 
the upper house, the Senate, is based on equal representation between states. Every state gets two senators. You look at the powers of Congress. Well, Congress has the power of the purse, the power to declare war. Though both of these are weakened in the 20th century as the presidency evolves as an institution. Congress passes law and can override a presidential veto. The Senate must confirm presidential appointees. So we're seeing checks and balances written into the Constitution. These two branches compete for power. And the idea of James Madison and Federalist Number 51, ambition counteracts ambition. That is, if government fights among themselves, they leave us alone and we have a little more freedom. Looking at Article 2, and again, we'll look at these more in-depth as the semester progresses. For the exam, you probably want to know the institution associated with each article of the Constitution. So 1, 2, and 3. If I were to ask you, say, the executive article, you should be able to tell me that's Article 2. president has a lot of power, but in many ways is symbolic, a figurehead, chief diplomat, chief ambassador. So a lot of informal power. In addition to having the formal power of the veto, although it can be overridden, being named commander-in-chief of the armed forces, though lacking the ability to declare war, that's a power of Congress. We also see that the president is expected to, quote, take care to see that the laws are faithfully executed. This is a little bit of a, a window into what the executive bureaucracy is going to be doing, how it's going to evolve. We start off with three cabinet-level agencies. We have Treasury, State, and War. Fast forward to 2020, we have 15 cabinet-level agencies, things like Labor, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Department of the Interior, etc., etc. In addition, in the executive bureaucracy, we have a lot of regulatory agencies. And we have the President's Executive Office, with lots of staff and lots of advisors on things like drug policy, economic issues, transportation policy, etc., etc. So the president's powers have certainly expanded. Some might say that that has a lot to do with technology. The president can come into our living rooms in the State of the Union. The president has a Facebook page, a Twitter account. We know he has a Twitter account. So lots and lots of ability and availability to get into our living rooms or our head spaces. Additionally, the president has the ability to bargain. Keep in mind, the president's the only person who wins a national election. By the way, the Electoral College, you might notice, the system by which the president is elected looks a lot like the composition of Congress. That is, our electoral votes are tied to the number of votes each state has in Congress. Something to keep in mind, why some states are more influential in presidential elections. Other powers the president has, appointing a cabinet, appointing federal judges, though these have to be confirmed with the Senate. And we'll look more in depth at the president's scope of authority and how that power is expanded, uh, again, through the executive office of the president, the expansion of the bureaucracy, and technological and social change throughout the 20th and end of the 21st centuries. How about Article 3? 
the judicial branch, what Alexander Hamilton calls in Fed 78, the least dangerous branch. They have neither the power of the purse, as Congress does, or the sword, as the president does. They can't command forces. They can't commit resources, national resources, to enforcing any of their decisions. And we don't see the concept of judicial review, something we revere today. We don't see that in the Constitution. It's only in the case of Marbury versus Madison in 1803 that we see Chief Justice John Marshall say the court has the ability to review the constitutionality of the behavior of other branches of government. That has since been institutionalized. It's the main function we tend to associate with the court in the 21st century. Pretty amazing. What's more amazing is we often think of the courts as being a bastion for uh, rights, a bastion or a safe place for folks who have been oppressed by government to go and seek redress. And we can look at some landmark lawsuits, some landmark civil litigation and Supreme Court rulings to bolster this point. We might say, for instance, Brown versus Board of Education that abolished segregation, made it illegal. But we have to be careful because for every decision the court makes that advances the cause of oppressed minorities in society, there are many other decisions that are made to keep the dominant regime in power. And again, this might have to do with the court wanting to preserve its legitimacy since it has no barrier, no real way of enforcing its rulings. A good example of this, former President Andrew Jackson, who's a military commander, he goes uh, near my hometown in Georgia, in a place called Dahlonega. He goes and uh, he takes land from the Cherokee tribe because there's gold found on that land. The Cherokee Sioux goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court actually rules in favor of the Cherokee Nation. Andrew Jackson gets wind of this and he says, Mr. Justice Marshall has made his ruling now. Let him enforce it. And guess what? John Marshall had no enforcement capability. When we look at the individual justices and judges that compose the court, one key feature we might want to pay attention to is the fact that these people are granted lifetime tenure. That is, they serve during periods of good behavior. That is, unless they are impeached or unless they're convicted of uh, some high-level misdemeanor or felony, they're going to continue to serve in that capacity. The idea behind that is to insulate them from politics, though recent research shows that it might actually provide more of a safe ground for the exercise of political opinions from these judges and justices. Pretty fascinating. It's what we call an externality, an unintended consequence. So we'll, re we'll revisit that throughout the semester. Uh, moving on to Article 4, here we're talking about the relationships between states. That is, states have to recognize each other as existing and having power. They have to be able to share common national currency, the dollar. And contracts made in one state have to be upheld in another state. Now, this is a thorny issue if you look back prior to the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage, for instance. 
there are other issues. Um, legalized cannabis probably being the one that's on the forefront in Illinois because some of our surrounding states aren't very happy with that decision and they certainly don't recognize the legality of marijuana or cannabis in their respective states. So lots and lots to be done there, but ideally we're not going to have different currencies or different uh, laws or at least different general expectations of society between state borders. We want some uniformity and expectations, and we can freely travel across state borders. Uh, Article 5, the amendment process of the Constitution, we've used it less than 30 times since the Constitution was ratified. Something to think about. Some pretty high-level ones, though. For instance, the income tax, say the 16th Amendment. Or how about the Civil War uh, aftermath and 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments? Or the 20th Amendment? Pretty big stuff that we've seen happen through the amendment process. How about Article 6? Again, the Supremacy Clause. This is the really heavy hammer of the Constitution. The national government has final say. The Constitution and the laws that are made by the national government under this Constitution are the supreme law of the land. And then finally, we get to our Bill of Rights. Again, concessions for the Anti-Federalists. We're all pretty familiar with the Bill of Rights. And a lot of these, if you'll notice, have to do with individual rights, especially rights of accused criminals. If you look at, say, the fact that in the Fourth Amendment, you don't have to submit to an unjust search or seizure of your property. Fifth Amendment, you don't have to incriminate yourself. You have the right to remain silent. Sixth Amendment, all the rights you have as an accused person at trial including the right to an attorney, the right to a jury of your peers, the right to face your accusers and question them, etc., etc. Seventh Amendment has more to do with civil suits. Not all that stellar, not all that fascinating. Eighth Amendment, we're talking here about avoiding cruel and unusual punishment. Now, in the 21st century, we wonder what constitutes cruel or unusual punishment. Some say, for instance... Cash bail systems represent cruel or unusual punishment. Others might say the use of certain uh, less than lethal forces, say pepper ball guns or tasers, might constitute cruel and unusual punishment. Some say solitary confinement. And our mores change, our views change, our values change because, again, we're a dynamic society. Look at the Ninth and Tenth Amendments again. We're reiterating that the powers vested in the Constitution, in the national government by the Constitution, don't take away all of our individual rights and all states' rights. We still have a very respectful recognition of state and individual rights that aren't listed or explicitly enumerated for the federal government in the Constitution. For the exam. You ought to know your Bill of Rights. I might ask you, for instance, what's the Eighth Amendment? 
be aware of those. I don't care that you know many beyond that. Certainly try to know all of the Bill of Rights. Now, some lingering questions. Why did the founders not address slavery? Why did they allow for the three-fifths compromise, which essentially said that African-American residents of a state or a legislative district counted as three-fifths of a person? Slave states wanted that because they wanted to have the capacity for representation. They wanted a higher population since the House is apportioned based on population, but they didn't want to recognize slaves as human beings or individuals with rights. So we get that. Why not ban it? Would it have been feasible? Or is this an example of the social mores at the time? Maybe if we went back in time in a spaceship, a time-traveling machine, we could find out what was going on with this decision. Why not give women suffrage? when we ratify the Constitution, rather than having women fight so vigorously to earn the right to vote? How about the ambiguity of the text of the Constitution? We can interpret the Second Amendment in so many different ways. Your interpretation of the Second Amendment might depend a lot on your ideology, what you believe about guns and gun policy. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go back and say, hey, what did you mean by the right to bear arms? What did you mean by a well-regulated militia? Which leads us to a final question, one that, again, is difficult, thorny, kind of a brain twister. Is the Constitution meant to be strictly interpreted as it is, despite the fact that it was written so long ago, Or is it a living document that evolves, that stretches, that bends, that evolves to fit the social needs of its day in the 21st century, for instance? Well, there's no right answer to that question. What we can say is the Constitution, in many respects, is the worst document ever written for governing a nation except for all the rest. Many nations look at our Constitution as a model that they want to follow, despite some of the deep and pervasive flaws and some of the shame that comes with those flaws. For instance, not banning slavery or not granting women equal rights to vote. With that in mind, I want you to engage in a little bit of a thought experiment. Imagine you took a time machine back to the Constitutional Convention. What would you tell the founders? Would you tell them about the internet? Would you tell them about World War I and II? The development of nuclear capability? Advancement of weapons? Advancement of telecommunications? The civil rights era? The civil war? The expansion of government? What would you tell them about? And what would you want them to do in response? What are some ways you would try to persuade them to change the Constitution prior to its initial ratification? This ought to be a fun uh, thought experiment on the discussion board. Hope you're all doing well. That's all I got for you now. Take care.